0: Welcome to Sloanies Talking with Sloanies, a candid conversation with alumni and faculty about the MIT Sloan experience and how it influences what they're doing today. So, what does it mean to be a Sloanie? Over the course of this podcast, you'll hear from guests who are making a difference in their community, including our own very important one here at Sloan. I'm your host, Christopher Reichert. So, welcome, uh, Tangi, to the second in our series. Uh, tell us um, who you are, where you work, about the last few years.
1: Wonderful. Well, I'm a partner at McKinsey & Company. My office location is Boston, though I spend quite a fair amount of time covering different geographies. I have a few responsibilities at McKinsey. I run our insurance practice in North America. I run all of our activities around design, digital, and analytics in the northeast of the U.S., where we have multiple uh, centers and I also run a piece of software that many of our clients are
0: using. Interesting. So I see uh, that you have a few achievements on your uh, on your uh, resume, some of which are the scholar. You are now a member of the MIT Sloan Alumni Board. Tell me about how scholarship is that part of Sloan after Sloan?
1: So I received the Civil scholarship while I was at Sloan. I think it was the first or second year of that program, I received a phone call asking me to go see the dean in the morning, and I was wondering what I had done to go into trouble so early in my tenure, and I got the privilege to hear that uh, I was a recipient of the award and that a part of my tuition will be covered by it, which uh, was just a wonderful experience, and since then I've been... Actively involved with the civil scholar community, we get together once a year for the conference. that Tom is organizing and we have some dinners and uh, it's very humbling to see who is part of that community.
0: Interesting. And um, tell me about the time before Sloan and what led to Sloan. So I was
1: born in France. Uh, I grew up in Belgium. In the education system in Belgium, you get to schools based on their ranking. I was fortunate enough to go to one of the better schools, but it turns out to be a school of engineering. And I didn't know at the time whether I wanted to be an engineer. So I graduated many years later with a master's degree in metallurgy. Uh, and realized that was probably not what I wanted to do as a profession. I joined Procter & Gamble for a number of years where I initially ran part of the engineering operation and I had the defining moment where in one of my plants I had two fatalities in a year and I realized I was cutting corner and decided I would never be on the cost side of the balance sheet. And I started a long process of rehabilitation which included trying to better my education in the areas of business. And so after a few years at PNG, I applied to go to MIT Sloan, went here, had an offer at Harvard and MIT, attended both admit at weekend with my wife, and the uh, um, evidence came that, you know, MIT Sloan was the community I wanted to be part of. And then while at Sloan, the defining moment was my wife and I welcome our twins, uh, but they were born extremely prematurely, so that had all sorts of medical issues, and I've experienced the incredibly caring community of the school for two years helping us out, but it also shattered some of my dreams of being an entrepreneur coming out of MIT Sloan. You know, I needed to find health insurance, and that's how I became a consultant and John Mackenzie.
0: Interesting. And how? Uh, what was it about Sloan compared to the other schools that accepted you that tipped Sloan to you, into your pocket?
1: I think at the time, and I will tell you looking back, At the time, it was really the community. You know, I was coming from a small country, being an engineer, uh, coming to the U.S. You know, it was an overwhelming experience. And being part of a group of people who really, I felt, had similar backgrounds, similar passions, similar values, was probably the number one. And I had met in Belgium a number of Sloan alumni who I felt were just genuinely the most caring people I knew. I think the second element was it was the the business school of the best engineering school in the world. And I was an engineer. And so there was a level of comfort knowing that I kind of knew the environment of engineering school. And I also wanted to find ways of exploring opportunities to be an entrepreneur, linking to the broader MIT network. I think looking back... What I didn't know, but really I'm glad I, I went to Sloan, was the notion of hands-on learning, right? I realized that, you know, doing cases in class is fine, but that's not the way I learned. I learned by getting my hands dirty. And I remember going for a couple of weeks in New Zealand, helping IPO a company and, and doing those kind of things. And the environment that Sloan provides is just so unique and I think superior for my own development.
0: And so for your entrepreneurial uh, desires that you said because you had twins <laughs> and you did health insurance and whatnot, how do you uh, exercise that that spark now in the work that you do?
1: You might remember, I, I say, for instance, I run a software. McKinsey is not known for software. I was probably one of the first guys to come up with the idea that we could be running software a few years ago. And I have a team of developers, 40 of them in India. That's an example. And I love that. It's a small portion of what I'm responsible for, but that gives me a disproportionate share of joy. I oversee all of our digital analytics and design activity. So we've done quite some acquisitions as a firm, we've acquired Veriday, we've acquired Luna, we've acquired Quantum Black and, you know, you acquire startups to some extent or, uh, and, and you become part of their fabric. Uh, so that gives me enormous joy. And then many of my Sloan friends have become entrepreneurs and are asking for my support and advice and uh, whether it's monetary or intellectual contribution. So that's my way of fulfilling it. I hope that the future part of my journey will allow me to fulfil it, you know, even
0: more so. And your work on the alumni board—how how did you come to come to the position, and, and how do you feel that that plays a part in, in your, your thinking and your aspirations or inspirations? So,
1: so the, the school has really meant so much to me. You know, I remember I was a metallurgist in Belgium. You know, and and where I landed today is because of the school. So I have enormous gratitude. And then remember, you know, the traumatic experience we had literally kids who were born and were not supposed to be alive. I mean, they are real miracles. They've spent years in the hospital and heart surgery, etc. And the level of support we got from the school is incredible. I, I remember not having to cook for months. We would go home at night and there would be a plate and people helping us out. So I've I've never left the school. I've never no, always felt very Connected to the school at Mackenzie, for instance, I was in charge of all the recruiting at the school. In part of, um, been in charge in the relationship we have with the Sloan Management Review in terms of publication collaborations. So I've always been part of the fabric of the school; never left. However, about. Two and a half years ago, I was approached asking whether I would want to join more formally the boards, and I met with a number of alumni who were on the board, Natalia as an example, and I was deeply inspired by what the dean was trying to establish through that board and decided to join, and I've been beyond pleased with uh, the experience and the impact.
0: And so when did you when did you join McKinsey? Was that right out of Sloan? Yep,
1: yeah, I joined as a summer associate in
0: 2003. And now you're a senior partner. I am, yes. And, and tell us about that journey, because not many people get to senior partner.
1: We are a few of us. So I I joined as a summer associate, and then I rejoined as an associate when I graduated in 2004. And I had an interesting experience. The first few years, I was really local because I had to take care of my kids in a very small office at the time, the Boston office. And it forced me to focus early on on few clients in a similar sector which led me to the reason I'm leading the insurance practice of McKinsey now is very early on. More than most of my peers, I specialized. The third thing that I think differentiated me when I I joined McKinsey at the time was at Sloan, I had studied system dynamics. I'd been teaching assistant to Peter Singhi, who was the author of the fifth discipline. And this notion of how do you think about large scale impact and how you organize and engineer it from the core is the type of big, big thinking that I was exposed to, that I tried to emulate and bring into the firm. And I think that's what created my my brand in the firm, was this, this, uh, this notion of understanding network impact. So after six, seven years, the kids started doing better. My daughter was no longer fed through Tube. I was elected partner. And all of a sudden, it became... What's out there beyond, beyond Boston? And so the, the next five years has been really the entrepreneurship in launching the software, expanding my roles and responsibilities, traveling the world. And five years later, I was elected senior partner. And now it's, um, uh, it's a combination of client entrepreneurship. You know, My role is to introduce new clients, but also really people development. When, when you are in the role that I am in, it's all about how you create opportunities for the next generation. So mm-hmm. I spend an insane amount of time with young people who are much smarter than I am, and that keeps me grounded, and I love it. when you mentor
0: them. Tell me about your uh, the role your partner played and, yeah. and a bit about the, the resilience that it takes, personal resilience that it takes to have children in the condition that they were in and also having a demanding and increasingly demanding uh, role yeah. at, at, a, at a firm known Yes, its, uh, its uh,
1: rigor so you're right the, the real hero in our life is my wife Charlotte I met her when I was 16 first day I met her I told her I would marry her she got scared, took me two years to get to my first date, <laughs> but I've always known that she was an exceptional person. The, the The notion of leaving her family in Belgium to go study in the US was a big decision, and I wanted it to be her. So we came to the Admit Weekend, and she chose MIT, and she chose very wisely. And uh, as I mentioned, the community was superb. The school did something remarkable. She was a psychologist focusing on patients' kids with cancer, terminal cancer. And for a number of reasons, she could not maintain that level of employment in the U.S. So the school gave her a job while at, uh, at MIT, initially in the admission office after that, in managing the intellectual property of MIT in international schools. Uh, and that all stopped the day of her birthday when uh, our kids were born, four months premature. The, the, the second part was, you know, being a mom, being a spouse and, and being in the community, she became friend with so many partners. We are living in Eastgate, and that's where that community came forward for us. And she remains, I think, probably better networked than I am, uh, because of of that affiliation. Obviously, with kids being sick for long, she decided not to return to work. It was just impracticality. So she was there to to support my professional journey. She has now returned to work. Um, you know, being a French teacher. And we really, when we talk about the school quite often, we we really feel that it has defined us and made us better people. I think we appreciated the need to welcome help when we needed it. We appreciated the fact that people from all horizons, diversities have, you know, amazing values. And so I, I just think that we, we became simpler, humbler people and then our love for each other grew from that type of experience. So she's... I think she loves
0: the school as much, if not more, than I do. That's wonderful. You you talked about um, system dynamics as a as, a, mm-hmm. as a, an interesting a topic that you discovered mm-hmm. and have developed. Are there any professors, other professors besides Peter Senge that you've kept in touch with or uh, memories that you have of topics or, or classes that you took that have stuck with you through years?
1: So it's interesting. While a student, the accounting class was the most grateful for me. And so that's what I remember while a student... If I look back, the classes that have had the most impact, one was a class called Industrial Economics. And the premise of that class is to say what matters is the industry in which you compete. If it's an attractive industry, you can be average and do very well. If it's a shitty industry, even if you're the best, it will suck. And, you know, there is so much truth to that. I uh, practice that every day. The second one was a class about uh, HR, and it, you go to business school, you don't think about it, but eventually, when you run large organization, you know, it's HR and it's technology, right? Oh. And so thinking really thoughtfully about developing congruent systems that help people perform at their best and be motivated, I think was an invaluable experience. And then the third one was G-Lab. You know, I had the opportunity to go to spend a couple of weeks in New Zealand, help a company go IPO. And again... That was an incredible experience. One week into the engagement of the project, we realized that the books of the company were corrupt. And so we had to face the CEO and tell him that he just could not go public. And I don't think there are many places where you can have that type of experience that young. And they shaped me.
0: They shaped me. And so uh, you're now heading up the digital strategy practice and property and casualty insurance. Mm -hmm practice and tell me a bit about the other one the digital quotient initiative yep and and you talked about the the digital in hr and how that really enables and empowers people
1: so back in the day seven eight years ago the firm realized that digital was transforming the nature of competition and we needed to have an offering and so some of us started developing some engagement models and after one or two years, we asked ourselves, are we making a difference? Are we really, really changing the trajectory of clients? And we just couldn't answer that question. And one of my colleagues said, well, does it make sense to help certain companies transform themselves digitally or is it too late? Right. And you can think about, you know, if you compete against Amazon. And I didn't know the answer to that question. and It really started haunting me. Um, and so we decided to do some research of think: Could we predict whether a company is likely to thrive in the digital area or not? We spent two years interviewing you know, all the digitally successful companies. They tend to be digital natives and asking them, why do you think you're on top? And it was a humbling experience because I would have expected folks to talk about technology, etc. And they were talking about strategy and culture. And over and over and over again, the answer was the same. So we decided to codify that answer in terms of a number of simple management practices. The question was, was that recipe applicable to non-digital natives and so we undertook a very long experiment of teaching certain companies to adopt those management practices and seeing whether their performance was changing and we can now uh, demonstrate uh, the correlation between certain management practice and total return to shareholder and growth. And So this digital quotient has become, you know, a tool uh, that actually is quite recognized, MIT Sloan, HBR, all those folks have written about it that allows you to diagnose where you are and prioritize interventions that will allow you to compete more effectively in the digital
0: age. So I assume that takes a certain insight for a company to understand where they are on yep. the on the S-curve, I think mm-hmm. it was, not we leap yeah. across to yeah. the next. Mm-hmm. Um, and How do you bring companies along that that don't understand where they are? And is that part of the, the, yep. the services that McKinsey would provide to help elucidate leadership yeah. on their... Potential for success or not?
1: Yes, it's a brilliant question. You know, what, what you are asking too is how do you address the unconsciously unskilled executive? It's a tough one um, because they need to be willing to learn. One of the things that I found pretty powerful is just get on a plane with them and go visit startups and have young kids tell them why they think they can disrupt their industries and show them what they're able to do with bubble gum and, you know, tape.
0: Scare them, in a sense.
1: It scares them. Right. But then you need to be able to bring it together. As a large organization, you have a brand, you have customers, you have many assets, and you have a lot to lose. As a startup, you have nothing, and you have a lot to gain. And therefore, the way you play your strategies are fundamentally different. So the first thing is open the eyes and create some level of discomfort. But then after that, you need to give them the courage to act. And that requires different approaches.
0: Interesting. Do you have any uh, thoughts on a do-over at Sloan? If you think back, what what, what would you do differently?
1: So I will tell you, uh, when I grew up, I read a book called Love Story. And it's about this uh, guy at Harvard who falls in love with this gal and, you know, she has cancer and, you know, he doesn't treat her the right way. That was my first love story book. And I decided to go to Harvard to go on the rink and to save the girl. So my very first day at Sloan, the guy sitting next to me was a French guy we met. And it turns out that he was a captain of the French hockey team. And I decided that I would learn to play hockey, not at Harvard, but at MIT. And so for two years, I, I practiced. At the end of the second year, I begged him to take me on his team to play the Harvard-MIT game, which I was utterly unqualified. (laughs) But I was also pretty pervasive and said, you know, give me five seconds on the rink. I went on the rink, I got checked, and I broke three rips. And so if I had to do over, I would be a lot more humble. (laughs) A lot more humble.
0: So in our last couple of minutes, do you have any... uh... Parting advice or thoughts for prospective students or for anyone listening to this? I
1: would have three if you allow me. The first one is it will be the most defining moment of your life. You're going to learn more about yourself than through other experiments in a safe environment. And you're going to raise your ambition and aspiration. So it's it's the best investment you can make in yourself. The second one is you're going to create a community that will carry you for years and years, and it's hard to describe, but MIT Sloan is really the special gem when people care about each other. And, you know, I would tend to say that even today it's probably my most valuable network. And then the third departing thought is when you are there, you need to be willing to experiment the mistake I think people make is they go to Sloan and say, I know exactly what I'll do coming out of school. And I think they minimize their exposure to different ways of thinking, different ways of working, and therefore they don't learn as much as they can about themselves. So go do it. Get to know the people. They're awesome. And experiment. Let the let, let the school shape you versus uh, try to use the school to shape where you are going.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Tangi Katlin, for your time today. And with Sloanies, talking to Sloanies.
1: Thank you. Happy holidays.
0: And to you too. Sloanies Talking with Sloanies is produced by the Office of External Relations at MIT Sloan School of Management. You can subscribe to this podcast by visiting our website, mitsloan.mit.edu slash alumni, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Support for this podcast comes in part from the Sloan Annual Fund, which provides essential, flexible funding to ensure that our community can pursue excellence. Make your gift today by visiting giving.mit.edu slash sloan.